I'm Liz Karen, and uh, my book, Night's Edge, is a story about a girl and her mom. Um, it's a story about codependent families, addiction, coming of age. It is also a story about vampires. Um, it follows a young woman named Mia, whose mother was turned into a vampire when she was 10 years old, and she has to find a way to protect her from the outside world and keep her from harming their community, harming herself. And so she starts giving up her own blood to keep her mom safe. Flash forward 13 years, uh, Mia's 23 and she's still doing it, but she and her mom start to wonder, um, you know, if there's more to life outside of what they've built. And that is where all of the bloody trouble begins. I'm going to start out in a way that I don't think I've had the opportunity to when I'm interviewing an author um, about, so we're talking about, you know, Night's Edge and um, I'm not going to start out by talking about Night's Edge because when I was looking at your, you know, Amazon, you know, profile and stuff like that, um, I was like, oh, there's already another book um, that she's got in the future. And I clicked on it because I was interested because I enjoyed Night's Edge and I was like, well, I'll obviously read whatever that is. And, um, I, it's a sequel. So um, that's where I'm starting. I'm not sorry. <laughs> we'll get into the actual story, but I was excited to see after f- just finishing reading the book and enjoying it, that there's more to come. So was that originally planned or is that uh, a, a happy kind of thing that happened after the original story was made? It was a happy thing that happened after I wrote the original manuscript. I truly intended Night's Edge to be a standalone. Um, and when I met Kelly, my editor over at Nightfire, um, and we decided we were going to work together. One of the first things she asked me was about something I, a door I left open at the end of Night's Edge, um, literally and figuratively, because now you've read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> but like, I, yeah, I, and I, and it was unintentional. And she was like, are we doing a sequel? Because this, 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 and this. Um, also, I'm going to try to be spoiler free as much as possible. Yeah with you. Um, and I was like, I didn't plan on that, but now that we're talking about it, oh my God. And it just spun out immediately. And then, you know, we did a two book deal so that we could do a sequel. And then I just started writing it and it, you know, I'm so excited that we have this sequel. I'm, I'm just thrilled that I got to write it and I had so much fun. Um, and I feel like it's a satisfying conclusion for these characters that I never intended and I'm just really happy it exists. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. So we're looking at, at least for the moment, like a duology situation. It's definitely a duology. <laughs> I I feel like I've, I've wrapped it up. I, you, okay. You'll get to the end of the sequel and you'll be like, yeah, you it's, it's, it's tied up. So. Gotcha. <laughs> um, but I, but I love that we got that opportunity. So it's funny that you bring that up. So I, a few years back, I was talking to Josh Mallerman, um, and we were talking about Mallory, which is a sequel to his book Bird Box. And he said that the inspiration or how he got the idea to do that book was he was watching the movie. And at the end of the movie, he said to his fiance, well, I wonder what happens now. And she's like, it's your story. <laughs> so he didn't even he was so caught up in the other person's like story that, you know, they took from his thing that um he didn't see it as his own thing. He saw it as like, now I'm a, a fan who's curious about what comes next. So um, sometimes it takes That's a little really push from the outside, I think. Um, yeah, I was, you know, really, really absorbed in the action of Night's Edge and just, you know, 
reverse engineering to that ending. And just, it was this jewel box of an experience and that was it. Yeah. Couldn't see, couldn't see beyond that until somebody tapped me on the shoulder. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm happy that it worked out that way because I really enjoyed Night's Edge. So it's Thank nice you. to know that we'll be seeing more of the characters and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Night's Edge is not, um, it's not shy about being a vampire novel. Um, and I know this is probably kind of a, a basic boring question, but like, um, I can see two possibilities. Either you've been fascinated with the idea of vampires and so wanted to do something in that realm, or it just fit the story you were trying to tell. So, or maybe something, a third option I didn't just mention. So, uh, what's your, uh, where, what's your level of vampire interest? I never intended to write a vampire book. Um, nobody was asking for one. Um, <laughs> but here it is. I truly, you know, I had certain themes and characters I was really interested in exploring. And, you know, they kind of say writers write the same story over and over again until they process whatever it is they're trying to process. And that's definitely that's been me writing for the past 10 years, writing about mothers and daughters and coming of age and things like that. Um, but I love genre and I've done sci-fi, I've done fantasy, um, you know, and I love horror. And, but I was never like a vampire kid. I, I loved, you know, I saw Interview with the Vampire, read a couple Anne Rice books growing up, obviously. Um, loved Let the Right One In. That was one of my favorite horror films yeah. when I was like in, when did that come out? I was like a teenager. Um, but you know, I like missed the twilight phenomenon. I was like slightly too old when it all came <laughs> out. And yeah. I was like, nah, none of this. So like vampires to me were not, not my jam, not my thing. Um, but when I, I don't know, this just popped into my head, maybe like 10 years ago, I, I realized, you know, I was processing some of my, um, some of my own childhood memories and making peace with some things like you do when you get perspective as an adult and, um, was just, I don't know. It, it came to me that mourning my lost youth and thinking about what I gave up when I was younger felt like giving of my lifeblood. Okay. And, you know, Mia in this story is literally giving up her blood to protect her mom and keep their secret safe. Um, and boy, if that didn't just spin out completely <laughs> from there. Um, and now we have Night's Edge and it's a vampire book, unapologetically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say I've been really impressed with Nightfire's marketing on it, where they're kind of being a little coy in some of the synopses and in the cover art and what have you. Um, and even in the title, which we had changed and that's another story, but everything is a little bit under the radar vampire. It's mm -hmm. not totally um, blood and guts and tall, dark strangers wearing capes, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, now that you say that, I, I, I have noticed that like even, so the Kammer image, um, which I don't have in front of me to look at, but seems very like ambiguous, like dark and, and like obviously something wrong may be going on, but not necessarily pointing to a specific reason or, or like source for, for danger or whatever. So yeah, I'll agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the giving the blood thing would definitely be an apt analogy. So that definitely makes sense. Um, but talking about 
the thing you mentioned, which was like, um, uh, I, I have an interesting observation because um, when I read this, I was pulling themes in my head. I always like to look at what themes are going on in the story. And for me, it was definitely like a really strained family dynamic. And like, there was, um, you know, uh, a problematic situation and I, I can go into further what, you know, I was thinking about it, but like reading other people talk about it, it's definitely called out as like a very specifically mother daughter, um, dynamic, which I can't have. So, um, to me, what I was pulling from it was, um, like you said, like giving up something of yourself and in the, and in the process you lose, um, your ability to be like a normal kid or like, so that's kind of basically what happens in this, you know, something bad happens in the beginning. Um, and then Mia, the main character then has basically ostensibly no choice, but to kind of give up a lot of her, uh, individual individuality and freedom in order to kind of maintain a normal, try to be as normal in this thing as possible. So, um, what was interesting for me is, I can't pull a mother daughter um, from my own um, personal experience. So I'm totally interested in hearing, um, was it specifically written as a mother daughter thing or was it just like a strained family dynamic type of situation? Yeah, for me, it always was going to be mothers and daughters because, um, you know, that's, that's kind of like I was saying before the, the story I keep writing till I can't write it anymore. Maybe I've, maybe I've done it. Maybe it's out of the system <laughs> now uh, at last, but um, yeah, just for me, um, you know, I, I grew up with a family dynamic where um, there were a lot of things I wasn't able to know about my mother and longed to connect with. So for me, um, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but I just finished reading white horse by Erica worth on um, really beautiful dark book about the unknowable mother and um you know i really connected with that so for me i didn't see any other way to tell this story than to have it be mothers and daughters i'm also fascinated by um this idea that so now i'm getting older and the things i do know about my mom um i'm seeing them in myself now and I think it's really interesting that like as daughters grow up, they are, they can be a lot like their mom for better or worse. And we usually fight against it as we're coming of age and want to have our own autonomy. Mm-hmm. But you know, some stuff just doesn't come out in the wash and it's for better or worse. And it's really, I don't know, just deeply interesting. And the way mothers also impress upon their daughters, um, lost dreams, expectations um you know it's it's a dynamic that's just very fertile and rich and i don't know i think it's a a bottomless a bottomless well to draw from sure and now now that you said that something comes to mind which is that the book is written in a in a first person kind of situation so we're really seeing the whole story from mia's perspective were was that always the the plan or was there ever um an attempt to like kind of show things directly from her mom izzy's perspective or am i i I could be getting something wrong but that's kind of just a general thought that came to mind yeah i think for this book i 
I wanted it to be squarely in Mia's point of view. I wanted to experience her memories through the eyes of a child who's confused but needs to take action. And then, you know, as a young adult who's trying to find her footing in the world, I thought it was really important to stay really tight in her POV. Uh, that being said, I eventually, and this is, you know, not in the sequel and not in Night's Edge, but there's a standalone short story I did write from Izzy's POV about what happened in the weeks leading up to her getting this disease and mm. how her life changed and how she how she knows she messed up, but there was nothing she could do. And that maybe in a way she kind of wanted it. And it's very complicated and very, you know, a lot of gray area. And so for me writing that, and I still haven't decided what we're doing with it. Are we putting it out there between sequel and <laughs> yeah. the first one? I don't know, but it exists. And I did explore what Izzy's side of the story was. I just don't know what we're going to do with it. But now, now I have admitted to you out loud that it exists. So maybe <laughs> I have to do something with it. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, we'll see. That would be cool to see. And, but I think that what you did by making it fully from Mia's perspective is created a kind of, um, an ability for the reader to have ambiguity about whether Mia's mom is, um, like an, not a good person right. or has made mistakes that have caused a bad situation. Like there's, and, and I think that might even kind of it feels like I'm in Mia's perspective, not really knowing a hundred percent, but wanting to believe the best of someone. So I feel like narrowing it down to Mia's perspective really kind of made it feel more like I was feeling Mia's feelings maybe. Yeah. And that helps me write it as well. I, I, I love writing in first person. Um, it just helps me connect really deeply. Um, I think a lot of writers feel that way too, but, and I think what you just said is, really interesting you know is is he not a good person or <laughs> is she just responding to circumstance is it a little bit of both and mm. i think that that's how that's how we view our parents sometimes when they do something that hurts us when they do something that is confusing we as their children can never it's very hard very hard to say my parent is a bad person you know, it's, it's very complicated. So I, I appreciate that you pulled that out thematically. Yeah. Um, well, you, you made it possible for me to feel that. So I, I have to give you the credit, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. And that's, um, it's interesting because, uh, so my, uh, going into a little personal thing, my father, uh, and my parents, uh, divorced when I was like, let, uh, less than two years old and um he moved to alaska so i was living in illinois and he moved oh, to alaska wow. Wow. didn't see him until i was a teenager didn't really have a lot of contact and so um even when he tried to you know kind of rekindle a, a family relationship he was not good at it and so you know for me there's it's easy to see these betrayals as or these actions as betrayals, I should say um, yeah. that it was an intentional thing to make me feel bad. It's easy for me to feel that way. Um, but um, then seeing people in his life that were, you know, in his day to day life that loved him and had great things to say about him. I was like, Oh, he's a good person. Um, so, but I didn't have that evidence until, you know, he was gone. So it was, it's, it's, 
like tapping into something that I think about from time to time. And people will tell you, I have a really hard time letting go of anger with a, with a, you know, a parent uh, because I think sometimes not even having closure kind of makes the door harder to close on something like that. But um, yeah, I think we all, to some degree, whether our relationships were good or terrible with a parent, because you can't know them the way they know themselves, there's always going to be that ambiguity of like, I don't fully know this person maybe. Yeah. And that ambiguity becomes really, for me anyway, becomes more powerful the older you get and the more you become an adult. And you're like, I knew my parent the way a child knows their parent. Um, yeah. And that anger comes from a place of wishing things had been better, things had been different because you wanted to love them. I don't know. There's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Um, and thank <laughs> you for, for sharing with me, um, you know, where you were coming from. Uh, yeah, that's, it's hard stuff. And that's why I think every time I have a conversation about Night's Edge, whether that's with like having a great interview with someone like you or an editor or, you know, someone else I'm working with, we always kind of open up. It makes yeah. you talk about your family. It makes you talk about your coming of age. Uh, whether you want to or not, it ends up happening. And I'm, you know, I'm here for it. Well, and that's interesting, too, because I talked to someone recently, um, uh, author Adam Godfrey, who had a, a book called Narcissus come out just recently as a novella. And one of the things we talked about was like kind of the reason he wrote that that story. And and he said he just wanted to give, you know, readers an entertaining thing to read. So there wasn't necessarily like a deeper meaning or exploration to it. Um, it was just a fascinating tale that he wanted to tell. Um, and so it was great and it was fun. It was entertaining and I really enjoyed it. Um, but like I feel that I identify more with the the stories that make you think about stuff and make you um, feel a feeling that maybe you wouldn't otherwise, if you haven't, um, haven't read that. So yeah, um, I definitely identify more with stuff like this, where there is kind of um, more to more to explore, but Narcissus was fantastic. I'm not knocking that at all. <laughs> yeah, no, no, completely. And by the way, like, I, the book I wrote before Night's Edge was something that I was just like, this is fun. This is a dark adventure. This is entertaining. This is sexy. This is scary. Like it, sometimes you write for those reasons yeah. and it's a beautiful, fun escape. So very different experiences, uh, <laughs> both very fulfilling. So there's room for all of it. Um, I like that there's going to be a more to the story down the road where, um, um, in the description, I don't think that the description of the second book really spoils anything, but it, it, one of the things that jumped out to me was that, um, Mia is now kind of faced with the idea that maybe she's more like her mom than she thought. And mm -hmm. having read Night's Edge, I was like, Ooh, uh, this is, uh, this will be interesting to see how that kind of exploration goes down. Yeah. So, I mean, that for me was, the major theme of the second book is how are we like our parents and how are we not like our parents and where is that space for forgiveness between the edges of your pain? Is there any, mm -hmm. um, these are all great, powerful questions that, you know, I feel like I ask 
in my own life really frequently and it was time to try to unpack them and what better way to unpack them than tell a weird little vampire story. So that's where we're at. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lightening things up a little bit though. uh, I, I, I'd like to comment about a couple of the characters. So Mia's the protagonist and Mia is, um, well, we haven't really talked about the way that the story is told, but it's told uh, at, when Mia is 10 and then when Mia is in her early 20s, like 23 years old or whatever. So it's kind yeah, of a back and forth. Um, it jumps back and forth between those ages. Um, and then so but in the in the early 20s age, 23, um, she meets Jade, who is a. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe her. Very effervescent. Um, thri- like um, if I like if I had to describe her as a color, she'd be very neon. You know, like there's just a lot yeah, of totally. energy there. <laughs> yeah. um, and so tonally in the book, I feel like um, even Mia's general personality, but also Jade definitely. Um, bring kind of a lightness and a, and a little bit of fun and quirkiness to the, to the story contrasting a bit of the the kind of the darker stuff um, that that's in there. So I don't even know if there's a question there, but um, Jade seems like almost written, like it's someone, you know, or someone you'd like to know. Um, So was there a Genesis for, for that character or was it just nice to give Mia someone like that in her life, which is a little bit different. Um, I mean, you want the best for Mia. You want her to meet somebody <laughs> who vibes with her, who makes her feel special and sparkly and happy. Um, and Jade is all of those things. And I, you know, found myself wanting that for her. And I'm like, I need this character to be the most fun and for it to truly just be like this awesome siren song that Mia can't resist and shouldn't. You know, I wanted it to not... Yes. Because what's going on for Izzy is like she's, her mom is getting into a very dangerous negative relationship at the same time. So that's over there. And we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that. But like, I wanted Jade to be a foil for that and to just glow where there was shadows over there. Um, So that was, it was very intentional to have her be very fun loving um, and I think it's part of why for me the book was enjoyable to write because I could kind of come up for air when I did scenes with the two of them. Yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it. Like you are kind of coming up for air. Um, but it also introduces the possibility of examining um, a, ch- a childhood that was stunted or kind of atrophied or whatever, because of the bad situation that the character was in. Um, now you've got a person who's an adult who maybe hasn't had a lot of the experiences that, you know, someone her age would have. Um, and now has to kind of, she's looking at it from her perspective. I felt very much like, Oh, we're at a disadvantage in this. Um, you know, she wasn't like unable to interact with people, but, um, definitely some kinds of relationships seems like it was like, she was less experienced with. So, um, Mm -hmm having Jade around kind of gave us the opportunity to see like what happens in these situations where suddenly like, you know, um, I get to have a deeper friendship or romantic thing than I, I've had an ability to have in the past. Cause it's been strictly forbidden. So um, I feel like Jade's character really opened the door for exploring that kind of 
uh, pain, anxiety, uh, elation, whatever it is. Yeah, I definitely, I think that, um, you know, the, the dynamic Mia and her mom have is just built on a foundation of fear that Mia didn't have, you know, didn't have friends come over growing up, you know, like don't, you know, if your mom's a vampire, like probably, probably don't invite a friend over after school, you know, you want to really lock it down. Um, and then dating was just a non-starter because, you know, you just don't want to let anybody into your life. And she and her mom kind of had this like weird vow of celibacy and it's, it's very strange. And I, but I think what's also going on for Mia and this is very real, uh, I think for any kids who've had trauma growing up, but like the Peter Pan syndrome of it all, is a factor mm-hmm. where Mia's 23, but I think emotionally she's much younger than that because sexually she's stunted. She's stuck at the age of like 10, 11, 12 when all of this terrible stuff started happening and her mom mm-hmm. got turned. So I think that like, how dare she grow up and she can't really grow up because like it would endanger their situation. Like there's a part earlier in the book where Mia talks about like, oh, I wasn't really allowed to wear makeup when I was in high school because it made me look older than my mom. And like, we can't have that. Because then people are going to know what she is. And, you know, constantly having to downplay your maturity and that you're growing up and that you're sexual and that you're an adult person (laughs) because you have to pretend to be younger than your mom. So that was a really interesting thing to unpack. So I think there were questions, questions I asked myself during the writing process of like, did, has Mia seriously never been kissed? Has she seriously <laughs> never examined like her sexuality? So like I talk about how she had a crush at one point, but like didn't understand that's what it was. She's not totally closed off, but right. she wasn't allowed to explore it and wouldn't, wouldn't dare go against her mother or put her in danger. So that's why the, this thing is the way it is. Yeah. And actually now that you said all that, it brings to mind an interesting contrast because at the very beginning of the book, her mom literally says to her, I need you to be the adult. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect of it where it's like, you need to be responsible. You have to think about all these important things and you have to like have rules that govern your life and everything that, you know, usually we would leave to someone who's mature and, you know, not 10. Um, In contrast with the fact that like she can't do that on the other side. So it's like a damned if you do kind of situation. Totally, totally. You're expected, someone like Mia is expected to be so mature, so responsible but also never, never grow up and have autonomy. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. It's cool stuff to think about. (laughs) (laughs) But, and again, I think that's why the jade of it all is a, you know, just a lovely counterpoint and enjoyable for me to write and hopefully enjoyable to read. Um, Cause you want, you want that for her. You want her to branch out. Yeah. And I will have to say that it was, um, I don't think this is going to sound weird, but it was enjoyable to see those awkward moments where Mia just didn't know what to do, where she was just totally flummoxed and like um, just kind of panicky because like she was just experiencing things she hadn't done before. So um, that was kind of, that was neat in its own way too. <laughs> um, we talked about that. It's a vampire thing, but there is like 
uh, and, and, you know, it's kind of your own take or flavor on, on vampires existing. So a couple of things that were interesting were that it's, it's a, it's a world where vampires are known publicly. And so there's like the public impact of that. Uh, and, and like, it's a known threat that is needs to be dealt with. Um, but there's also like just a, a teasing of, of history of where this all started, kind of like a patient zero. So, uh, was that fun to, to come up with or was that, you know, inspired by anything or was that just straight from the imagination? That was, yeah, it was fun to come up with. Um, what was kind of interesting was I had all of the emotional mechanics of these characters figured out a while ago, but was really struggling with some of the world building and some of the realism that I was like trying to capture here. Cause I, you know, wanted to do something that felt really grounded and character driven. And so wanted the world to emulate that, um, you know, sense of reality. And I was just, I was having trouble threading the needle until we had a pandemic. <laughs> I don't know if you heard. And oh, yeah. uh, so during 2020 was, you know, stuck at home reading terrifying things on the internet and all this misinformation and just how political things got and how unstable everything felt and being just stuck thinking about diseases all the time. Um, a lot of things crystallized during that year. And so thinking about how this is truly a disease and not just, and not, not a pandemic in the way that like COVID was spread, you sneeze and you might get it on an airplane. Um, Saratov syndrome, which is what we are calling the, the vampire disease in our book, and the vampires are called Saras. Um, you catch this because someone comes after you with intention. And that makes for a very sinister pandemic. Someone mm. wants to turn you and take you on. And, you know, that that leads to a lot of dramatically rich situations. Um, and so I really was fascinated by the show Chernobyl, um, mm -hmm. the way that they, the way they unspooled all of that secrecy and how dramatic it was. I loved the way that was conveyed. And so I was definitely inspired by that whole history and scenario with Saratov syndrome, how it comes from this little town in the USSR in the late eighties and this weird little family that like had this thing happen. And yeah. I mean, people will just have to, to read the book and uh, hear more about it, but it was fun to, let me put it this way. The pandemic wasn't fun for anybody anywhere, but it was, entertaining in its own dark twisty way to conceive of a mythological disease at that time. Um, that's awesome. And I was, I, I, I dance around the idea of mentioning overtly the pandemic um, in relation to stories that are, you know, contemporary yeah. because um, you know, uh, well, I, I was talking to Zoya stage and um, people were giving her a hard time about, her book mothered because it was very obviously a pandemic situated story. Um, but yours obviously is not. And, and so, um, you know, it's, it's not, a, it, 
it's a part, it's a mechanic of the story, but it's not something that's like right in your face. Um, but what was cool for me was we have all experienced this kind of global trauma that we all need to process. And, um, and so reading stories that are, you know, um, that, that kind of evokes some of the feelings we went through can be a good thing. You know, they can be something where it helps us be like, Oh, you know, um, maybe put to bed some of the, the, the thoughts that we had about it or, you know, the, the problems that we had, um, going through it. Um, so I like when stories kind of add that realism or, you know, those aspects of it, because, um, it is something I like to think about and, and, and it's very unique in our, in, in generationally, I think it's very unique. It hasn't happened in a long time. So, um, I think it's just a matter of like, how, how does one approach it? And, um, so far all the books that I've read that incorporate it in one way or another have done a great job of like making it something where it's like, um, uh, not, ex- not exploitative or, or whatever. Like it's just, um, it's an element that we can think about. Uh, I know I'm talking way too long about this, but <laughs> it's an element that we no, can think I, about. I hear, I hear you. Yeah. It's well, it's kind of interesting how like a pandemic situation fictionally has stopped feeling as fictional as maybe it once did. Yeah. Like there's a reason the last of us was such a huge show and I think it had, you know, cause they were nervous about putting that out being like, this is a pandemic show. I don't know. Like there were, there was something to tether you to it emotionally that maybe 10 years ago would have felt really different because this thing that has been viewed as a fictional apocalyptic story nugget actually yeah. happened to us. Right. And so all bets are off now. And I honestly think like I was, you know, thinking about what you were saying about mothered and how it's a, you know, I, I don't like the idea that something is, is a pandemic story. Like everything's a pandemic story. Now it's this worldwide crisis we all went through together and it altered our culture. So how is everything not, it's not as niche as I think people want to, want to believe. So that's my take on it. There are no (laughs) pandemic stories. Everything's a pandemic. I agree. And like, um, I have some thoughts about publishing and how publishing publishing's great because it gives me the books that I read and love. And so like, you know, I need people to publish things, but at the same time, um, I've seen brilliance just, you know, get stepped on because of like the whimsical nature of, you know, an audience. So, um, you know, there's that side of it too, but anyway, I don't want to get too, <laughs> too serious about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, and I hadn't thought about it that way, but really everything is, there's no way you can write something that doesn't somehow even like subconsciously reflect the stuff that we went through. So yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with you there. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting that Chernobyl was one of the reasons because I thought that that, um, that show was awesome. And, um, I really enjoyed it. Then I, I found out there was like the companion podcast. So I listened to that and like got to hear all like, you know, from the creator's perspective and everything. Um, but it is very rich with like what you, like what you said, which is the, um, government denial, uh, how they mishandled stuff and, and, um, how something that if people just made the right choice, 
could have been stopped turned into something much bigger and much more more deadly. And so it's very apt that that would be something that um, you drew inspiration from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chernobyl was so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not the inspiration that people were thinking I was going to pull out, but yeah. Well, <laughs> it's always interesting um, where where an idea comes from because it's not it doesn't seem like it's very necessarily a straight line. Um, I still yeah, love uh, Stephen Graham Jones was talking about his book, My Heart is a Chainsaw. And I believe, and I could be misquoting or misremembering, but he, when he was asked where the story came from, he was talking about how he was reading The Virgin Suicides and liked the way the story was told. And that was the inspiration for telling a story. It just ended up being a lot mur- more murdery and, and, and stuff. So <laughs> yeah. who knows where an idea is going to like, you know, or- originate. So, but that's always, that's why really? I love doing this too. Cause I get to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Some of my favorite reads. I mean, obviously I love horror. I love sci-fi. I love genre, but like, I love reading memoirs. I love reading. So some of my favorite, favorite books, um, you know, coming of age stories, I loved In the Dream House and my, um, I'm Glad My Mom Died and The Glass Castle. All really sad memoirs about coming of age, abusive relationships, all this stuff. And so because that is something I gravitate towards as a reader, it made sense to me, you know, kind of, you know, in terms of what you were talking about with where where does an idea even come from? Where Where yeah. does... Um, where do you draw inspiration? It's like writing Night's Edge as if it were a memoir was was the key for me, where I wanted it to read like that and feel like that, but you knew you weren't reading a memoir because it's about vampires. Um, yeah. <laughs> and something that has been so cool, um, and now I'm allowed to talk about this, is that the audiobook narrator for this is this incredible actress, um, Chase Sweet Wonders, who was in the movie Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Um, she's in the show Buck Kiss right now. Um, and she's, she's incredible. Uh, and the way she narrates this book, to me, it's as if she's on stage at the Moth where she's just talking about this crazy thing that happened to her when she was a kid. And she's so mm-hmm. natural. It, and it gives it that texture of a memoir that I wanted so badly. So when I first heard her read the first couple chapters, my, my mouth just hung agape. I was like, <laughs> it's this, it sounds like this. It's perfect. Everyone should go yeah. and listen to her audiobook. It's um, It's unreal. That's awesome. I have to imagine that it's definitely gratifying when uh, as an author, when you get, uh, you know, the audiobook seems like the people doing the audiobook really get it or like really represent it the way you want. So that's gotta be really either a relief or or satisfying. <laughs> both. Yeah, definitely both. If it's a relief first and then you're like, oh, but I also <laughs> just love it. Yeah. yeah. Very, very happy. Um, so one thing you mentioned just now uh brought to mind something that I I was thinking I'd it would make sense to talk about. So you said writing it like a memoir. And so it being written the way it is, uh, it is not crazy dialogue heavy. It's, um, it's a lot of Mia telling you what happened or what is Mm -hmm. happening. And so, um, one of the effects that had on me is like, I felt kind of like the claustrophobia of her situation. 
Um, so it had a good emotional effect on me. Like I very much felt like these things were happening to me. Um, but then looking, uh, looking into kind of you in general, uh, I think, you know, in various places, screenwriting is something that you're listed as being, you're a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not an author and I'm, I've never written anything for film or TV or anything like that, but screenwriting to me is it's action and dialogue. So it seems kind of very different than, the way that this book is laid out. So um, was there any problem there or are you just, um, or am I way off base or is that something that it's easy for you to do kind of either way? Um, it's easy for me to do either way, but it wasn't easy for this. Um, there's, there's a, I kind of partition my brain really clearly between I'm writing a film, I'm writing an episode of television, I'm writing a book. And, um, and kind of, they, they don't, they don't always meet in the middle. But um, so it wasn't this what writing the book wasn't challenging. Like, I, w- I really like going in really deep into a character's mind and uh, going on that ride with them, which is something you don't really do on television, because it's so external. But um, as you might have seen on the internet, we are developing a Night's Edge television show. I have been writing that pilot and externalizing all of this internal stuff <laughs> has been an incredible challenge. Um, it's going great. We yeah. got it. But like it took some time and, yeah. and we had to kind of crack the bones a little bit and see what was in them and then reassemble the skeleton. Um, it was really interesting because again like you've been saying the book is just so in her head such a little tight jewel box that um in order for the whole setup to make sense and for the audience to understand how they got here and why she like this we had to create situations to externalize a lot of what's internal in this book um yeah and i thought it was going to be easy i'm like i know these characters i know what's up no it was really hard um so it's been it's been a super interesting experience doing that. Well, yeah, that was that was going to be a topic that I led into because that is exciting and it's nice that you get to you know be a part of it. Um, yeah. the, the, the the writing, the development of it. Um, do you think that? Um, so I will say that the book read pretty cinematically. Like, there's books that you know it's easy to envision, like vividly kind of in your head what's going on whereas some other ones it's it's not as you know it's not that way so is being a screenwriter helpful in kind of writing in a more um visual cinematic kind of uh way for for your novels definitely um you know i went to nyu film school i did dramatic writing at tish um and the one thing they drill into you from like day one is just the structure the three acts or if you're doing television the five acts and just building the action and the denouement and like all the ways that those mechanics make for a satisfying journey with a character. And so that's just like part of my DNA as a writer since I was like 18 years old and started doing it, doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So writing books, I find that I, I outline them and I break them like a movie. Um, And I did that with my first book, Phantom Forest as well. I had that in my head, like this is three acts of a movie. It goes here, it goes here, it goes here. Um, And so Night's Edge was the same way, but 
you know, broke form a little bit because I was playing with the nonlinear timeline and, you know, for flashbacks and everything. But mm -hmm. um, same idea, you know, you're building to, <laughs> again, trying to be spoiler free here, but you're building to this big event at the end of Night's Edge with, with Jade and Mia and Devin and Izzy and it all kind of like everyone's in each other's crosshairs and um, you know what's coming. Yeah. And it, yeah. So, and then, and then I reverse engineered what that, that big ending is and kind of just yeah i structured it like a movie good yeah um and then one of the things that this is just a random thought because we haven't talked about devon devon we're saying Devin, yeah. right yeah mm -hmm. um i always worry there's this thing my girlfriend talks about all the time where um people will mispronounce words and she doesn't see it as like people not knowing how to like not understanding the word it's just that they've only read it, never said it kind of thing. And so, yeah, that's, that's like when I was a little kid and read Harry Potter and I was saying Hermione and right. then I heard someone say Hermione for the first time. And I was like, Oh, obviously it's Hermione. How the yeah. hell was I saying that in my head? Same thing. But yeah. she kind of takes it as Devin's a badge also of a honor. Funny name Cause it's, um, cause it's also a girl's name and it can be said like several different ways. Yeah. No, <laughs> I went to school with a male Devin. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, she takes it as a badge of honor that like, if you mispronounce words because you read a lot, that's nice because you're reading a lot and that's a good thing. So, um, I like that spin. I like that. <laughs> um, so I'll never be apologetic if I say something wrong, uh, if I read it somewhere, because you know, our, our minds kind of receive those as we, as we will. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. but one of the things I liked about Devin as a character was I always like kind of a bad guy who's more referred to than present. Like um, yeah. maybe like the thought of, not the thought of, but like, uh, I, I guess I just said it the right way the first time, but like they don't, they're not always there, but they are like a, a threat in the story. Um, and I can, I can give examples of other books that do that very well. But um, uh, I, I wonder if that's, changing with the next book or is that not something we want to go into <laughs> i can go into it a little bit um yeah well that was actually part of the challenge of writing the second one is that like in the first one yeah the looming threat of him is very present but he is not physically present right. very much he exists in her memories and memories are tricky especially when you're a child and so what I'm playing with in the sequel is like, what do you really remember about this person? What really happened that day? What is he telling you happened that day? Yep. What, what is in your mind? Like, do you just remember him the way you remember the scary parts of a movie you once watched? Like right. you watch this person through your fingers. Um, the idea of him is scary, but who is he really? And so for me as the writer, that took a while for me to figure out because he's, He's in it, he's in the sequel a lot more than the first one, but it takes some time to get to that is all I'm going to say. Um, yeah. And I had to find his voice and like put him in more scenes and be like, <laughs> wait, who even is this guy? Hold on. Um, what is he doing? And that well, was, that was fun and dark and creepy. And I'm, I'm really excited actually for people to get to know that character better in the next one. I think that now that you say it like that, I think it's cool that it was more of a legend or an impression of the person as opposed to the actual person. 
because it allows for that discovery. If we just saw him black and white in the first book, you wouldn't have as much place to kind of maybe examine or explore. Um, then if like the situation where it is, where he's, he's, he's more of like a, like a looming presence than an actual presence. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he's the boogeyman. Yeah. And you know, it's like, and then something we talk about a lot in this overarching story is like, well, who is, who is the villain? Is it her mother or is it him? And I'm like, why not both mm-hmm. for different reasons? Um, so, yeah. That's cool. Um, going back toward uh, talking about the, the television series, a couple of thoughts come to mind. First of all, I'm assuming this is kind of like in early stages of like production or pre-production. Um, so you might not necessarily know when an actual show would manifest. Is that kind of accurate or? Yeah. Well, as you might've heard, the writer's guild went on strike a week ago. <gasps> oh, that's uh, so right. we're not yeah. allowed to come to work um, and we are fighting for our rights. So there, there is a script. Um, the script is done. The script was turned in in the you know the the wee hours before that writer strike started, um, so we're just waiting for more news. And yeah. you know, I expect that you know the strike is going to upend a lot of plans that might have been in progress. So I'm in limbo as much as anybody else is, and I will hopefully be among the first to know <laughs> if we're moving ahead. Um, but, you know, did get to write a script and spent the past like two years developing it really. Um, and it's been, like I said, it's been a journey. It's been a treat. And I met some incredible people during the yeah. process. Um, and so even if we don't go any further, if the gods of television don't smile upon us, um, I'm really glad it happened. Um, I don't know why I didn't even think of that because I was even like on your social media, just kind of looking at kind of recent things. And I saw you posting about the strike. So don't know why that didn't occur to me to, you know, incorporate that in my thoughts about it. um. (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) people don't, you know, well, television is so funny the way development works. Like we only just announced that this show, that the development of the show even exists like a couple of weeks ago. Um, when it's been dominating my life for the past year. So it's it's hilarious how people think this just started and I'm like, no, it's yeah. been going. So really like it's a totally, you know, relevant question to ask, where is it at? What are you doing? For all you know, we've been shooting it. Mm. Um, no one really knows. <laughs> Even I don't know. Yeah. Um- Well, so before I get to my second question about the show, then what's the best way people can support the writers like who aren't, you know, writers uh, in the writers guild and everything? What's what is there something people can do to support the writers other than just say, hey, you know, like bring attention to it? I mean, bringing attention to it is obviously super important, especially when it comes to the issue of AI, which was one of the key points that was not addressed in our negotiations. And is really troubling and we want everyone to be speaking out if they don't want, you know, if they don't want the finale of succession to be written by a robot, like, please, please tell everyone that you don't want that. (laughs) Um, Make it known. Another thing that people can do to support the writers, there is a fund called the Entertainment Community Fund, um, formerly known as the Actors Fund. So now it's for all of entertainment. Um, and it exists to help working artists who um, whose families are impacted by something like a strike. Um, and that exists. You can Google it. You can, you know, 
donate a couple of bucks. There's, you know, not everybody is, not everybody's diving into piles of money like Scrooge McDuck over here. Yeah. Like there are, there are working writers I know who have two other day jobs, you know, who are bartenders, who are babysitters, dog walkers, like, you know, and that's part of the reason we're striking is, mm-hmm. you know, we're being squeezed for every dime and these are working class artists. Yep. Um, well, obviously I'm fully in support of, and I'll put, um, I'll put that in the the notes, my, my sub stack, you know, post for this cool, so that right. people can have mm-hmm. access to that. Whoever listens to this, um, and the AI thing. Um, so my girlfriend is, uh, copywriter. Uh, and so okay. when stuff like chat GPT manifested, it was an instant source of like a ton of anxiety because it has the potential to destabilize or replace, you know, certain positions. And there's people whose livelihoods depend on that. So I, um, not from your specific perspective, but from, you know, related perspectives have, have heard a lot about that lately. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's going to impact other industries, not just entertainment, not just, you know, advertising. God, it's, you know, it's really destabilizing. Yeah, that's yeah. the right word for it. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I take it very seriously. And um, I, I really honestly should, you know, be more read about stuff, um, like, you know, so that I'm more aware of, of the deal. But there's like a cybersecurity podcast I listen to and um, hearing people from the cybersecurity side of things talk about how it's kind of an issue or because like it could be even coding like you could you could have um, programs generate code and stuff and how that could be like for malware. So yeah, it is kind of a ubiquitous threat that people don't really see, I think as, as big as it, as it, as it is. So, um, the AI part of it. Yeah. I think I, I, I empathize a little bit. Um, I think I'm safe, but who, who knows? <laughs> no, I thought I was safe. I was like, Oh, robots don't have childhood trauma. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'll do the thank you. Um, Unless there's anything else that I haven't talked about that. I think we got it. I, okay, this cool. was a great conversation. Thank you for being my, my first official podcast interview. I, I was delighted to speak with you. Awesome. Um, wait, first you, uh, for the book or for this book, not, yeah, not okay. my pod- <laughs> podcast ever. Okay. Um, but the first official podcast interview for night's edge. Has cool. Been you. I, I feel like that's probably going to be a trend for me because I try to talk to authors early, early, um, yeah. because I want to do pre-publication stuff. So, um, maybe I'll refine a way to kind of help authors in the prep process of being able to talk about it. So whatever, we'll figure yeah. it out, mm-hmm. <laughs> but okay. yeah, thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Um, I'm always a little nervous when I've never spoken to a person before and it's kind of brand new. And this was the first thing I read from you. Um, so Uh, You made it very easy and um, I appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. You made it super easy for me too. That's great. (laughs)